This episode was brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for business. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my absolute pleasure to welcome to Unstoppable today, Ben Pronk. Ben is a specialist in risk, resilience, process improvement, and leadership in high-pressure situations. He is an ex-Special Forces operative with 24 years in the Australian Army and is also the co-founder of The Metal Global, a consultancy that delivers resilience solutions to clients globally. He teaches leadership programs at the Australian School of Management and he's also a board member for VGI Partners. He served on multiple operational deployments to Timor-Leste, Iraq, Afghanistan, and was decorated for leadership in action. And he concluded his service as a commanding officer of the SAS. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Ben Pronk. Ben, great to have you here, mate. Cool, and it's awesome to be here. Whereabouts in the world are you? I forgot to ask. I'm in the West Coast. I'm in Perth. Um, so in the land of the free. Uh, yeah, but I'm not gobbing off about it, mate. I, a, because that's a nasty thing to do. And, and, you know, we are really sympathetic to people in the rest of Australia and the rest of the world who are dealing with far worse COVID situations than us and B, because it's probably only a matter of time before it's us in that that same boat. Yeah, no kidding. They seem to be picking it off state by state. So um, yeah. I think the odds are, on, odds are on for Queensland next, uh, followed by South Australia and possibly WA, but we'll see. <laughs> but mate, I'm really curious because you have an extensive career, not just um, in military, but also now in the private sector. But if you were to go and sit down, you know, for dinner with a group of eight people that who didn't know you and the conversation turned quiet in the first 10 minutes and someone turned to you as everybody looked and said, so what do you do, Ben? How do you answer that question? Our elevator pitch is we promote organisational excellence. And this actually is something we've evolved to. I reckon a couple of years ago, we would have said in our current roles that we do crisis management and leadership and resilience. Um, but the more we look at it, the more we see there's a nexus between all of these sorts of things. And our interest in resilience comes from our own sort of personal sort of backstories. But we are seeing a demand for it. We're seeing how it translates not only to uh, betterment at an individual level, but also to groups of people and, and how it can sort of progress. And, and we reckon that, you know, so many of these things are multifactorial. We want mm. to be sort of continuously just assessing and, and sort of nudging different areas forward. And, and that's essentially uh, how I describe what we do, promote that organisational excellence by, by sort of tweaking those levers. It's been interesting to observe, um, you know, the consultancy space over the last 20, 30 years and see the dynamics and the language change, you know, because mm. I know once upon a time, you know, stress uh, was a big thing, especially in the corporate space. And then it's kind of been phased out with an integration of performance training, you know, and high performance training. And now we're seeing that, the, you know, oftentimes at the core of performance training is resilience training and, and grit training. But it's, it's been a bit really of an fun. evolution. Would you agree? Yeah, definitely. And, and I mean, part of this mirrors our own interest in this concept mm. of resilience because we think, particularly back in the day, that the conversation was all about stress. We've got to reduce stress or manage our stress. And we sort of think of it as a seesaw with stress on one side and resilience on the other. And all the focus was on stress, which kind of didn't really uh, prepare people left of an incident. It was all about, you know, okay, we'll, we'll manage it until we have a, a spill and then we'll take some stress off. And so it's 
really cool to see that a lot more discussion is coming towards this idea of, well, how can we build that resilience side of the equation so that we don't ever get to that point where yeah. the, the scales tip um, negatively? And like you said, there is a real nexus now. There are so many modalities that are coming together um, that are joining forces that really do help when it comes to the increase in performance. I am curious though, where does your journey in this space start? Because I know you um, you joined the military, but is this where it started for you or did you have an interest in performance before that? <laughs> I'm laughing because anyone who knew me at high school, I, I was the, the fat kid at high school. Um, no way. So, yeah. Um, so no, yeah, an interest in performance probably. So you didn't have I any mean, discipline in high school? You weren't a sports person or a mathematician no, or really. a, a, a musician really. I, I was definitely a musician and i did pretty well at, at school the academic side of things so yeah i don't know if it was a, a lack of discipline but certainly um it, it's a funny sort of journey my my father um so my brother and i co co-authored the book obviously same dad but we we often reflect on um how he and, and my mother instilled in us this concept that that anything was doable Mm. That, you know, if, if someone could do it, then, then you could do it. And so I think I always had that um, underpinning belief. And, and I think that's really set me up well uh, for, for later ventures and challenges. Um, but I don't think as an adolescent, I really sort of manifested that. I don't think I backed myself to, to sort of um, follow some of those things through. And for me, I guess the, the real start of the journey um, was through the, the sort of exposure to the SAS concept. I think I'd, I'd read Bravo to Zero. That would have been about the, the time where, where I sort of first became aware of this thing. And it, it just seemed so far off. But with the benefit of hindsight, I, I think I did set up on this sort of one foot at a time type journey, um, which currently, you know, this virtuous circle gave me confidence. Each one of those little steps that I made towards this seemingly unattainable goal served as just a little platform that I was a bit higher up when I challenged when I took the next challenge and and so to to answer long-winded way to answer your question I think my journey did start when I I sort of clicked out of that mode of, of you know not challenging myself and actually set this goal and you know tried to do a 5k run and failed and then sort of gradually built that up to you know, I remember a half marathon was a massive thing um, and, and did that and then, then sort of progressed from there. So that, I reckon, was the, the real start of the, the interest in the journey. And so at what point did the military come onto your radar? Was it while you are at school? You started reading Bravo to Zero and then that became an aspirational goal for you? Is your dad ex-military? Yeah. He is, yeah, yep. yeah. So um, my father uh, was an Army helicopter pilot. Yeah, wow. Um, and so we'd always had this in the background. Um and, you know, back in the day, you'd, you'd go to these open days and they'd fly around in helicopters and you could drive around in the back of APCs and shoot blanks. And I don't think that that happens so much anymore. But we we very much had this front row seat. And from day one, you know, I was the <laughs> the fat kid in cams uh, wanting to be a, a soldier sort of when I grew up. So <laughs> so that was always in the, the pipeline. And funnily, Dan, my brother, was, was completely the opposite. He, he never wanted to join the army as a kid. So I had that exposure, but not to that sort of SAS side. And, and like I said, it was those things like the external, um, uh, you know, when it started coming on the collective consciousness through things like Bravo to Zero um, that I think I 
really drifted or, or my, my sort of sights aligned on that. Yeah, right. And so what was the progression? You decided when you left school, did you just join the military and then you progressed towards the SAS? Yes. I applied for the Australian Defence Force Academy in my final year at school and got accepted. And I graduated school, finished school at 17. So um, we collectively decided it was probably not a good idea to, to join the military and go to university uh, younger than drinking age. So I, I had a year off um, and, and did this gap year actually with my father. We travelled all around Australia. We did a number of these amazing sort of uh, expeditions. And it was a real... Um, my father passed a couple of years ago and, and it, it's just such a cherished yeah, memory right. for me and, and a beautiful transition from, you know, adolescence to, to manhood in that almost that oldest yeah. sense of the, the term. The right so that was fantastic, uh, 100%. And then into into the academy, um, did three years there, fourth year at the Royal Military College Duntroon, which is the Army Officer Training. And then um, uh, at the end of that, decided to, to go to Infantry Corps uh, did that for a couple of years up in Townsville, which was just fantastic. The Laverick then, Barracks. Laverick Barracks. I was going yeah. to throw that out there. I actually grew up on Laverick. Um, oh, really? Yeah. My my best mate, his parents used to run the kiosk at the pool and the theatre there. Awesome. And I have so many great memories. Like you talk about, you know, sitting in the back of an APC and firing blanks. Like we used to walk around Laverick and find chains of M60 <laughs> blank ammo. <laughs> And we'd spend hours there with our pliers cutting the heads off and, and pouring out the powder. And, the powder. Yeah, and then lighting, lighting up, up the powder and lighting up the primers. And, uh, yeah, lots of good That's memories. Hilarious. And so you spent time up there. Yeah, I did a couple of years up there. Oh, gee, like so many things, you, you never appreciate it, I don't think, at, at the moment. But looking back, I mean, that was incredible soldiering. It was an amazing time, too, because... We'd had this sort of 30-year period since Vietnam where the army just hadn't deployed. Yeah. Um, and so there was kind of no expectation. I mean, my, my father had served and, and never deployed. And so there was no expectation that you'd go on operations or go to war. But all of a sudden, there was this kind of almost ground rush. Timor sort of started in my last year there, and I deployed uh, on D-Day at, at the end of uh, 1999 with the 2nd Battalion and just... Um, it, it is, it's very funny to look back on operational service because there's a, a lot of um, people have negative experiences and clearly there's a, a, a really well-deserved narrative about PTSD. But something that is often not um, spoken that, that sort of publicly about is it is exhilarating. It is uh, a culmination of, of a, a sort of professional journey for many people. Um, it is what you've been employed to do. Uh, I think, you know, it sounds almost trite, but there is a nobility to serving your nation. And, and, you know, you can argue about the politics of whether we should have been in this country or that. But fundamentally, this idea of serving the democratically elected government of your nation and, and representing Australia's interests in that foreign context, all of those things are, um, I think, very uh, worthwhile and very professionally fulfilling for most soldiers. And so was it long after that that you w applied for the SAS? And um, it, was, it was right after that. So right. I got back from um, East Timor, I think it would have been about February 2000. So, yep. um, and again, it's funny with hindsight, I remember Y2K was a big thing. I, I spent New Year's Eve on the, the um, Indonesian border on, on picket and we actually watched the, the, the clock tick over from a, a gun position through night vision goal and we didn't you know there was all those conspiracy we were wondering you know would, would the world stop you know would our <laughs> night vision goggles suddenly cut out or our radios blow up or something and 
it was all incredibly anticlimactic. Um, so, yeah, February 2000, um, I came back and got posted to the School of Infantry in Singleton uh, in a supernumerary position. If ever there was an incentive to pass selection course, it is being posted supernumerary to the School of Infantry at Singleton. <laughs> is that <laughs> so, a shit job, is it? It's just, yeah. The school's a fantastic job, but I, I had no job. I was just sort of floating around. And, yeah, right. and so uh, the alternative, if I didn't pass, was was to go back to kind of nothingness. And so it was a great driver. Um, yeah, within, a, I think it was about four or five weeks from getting back to the team where I did selection and unfortunately did get through and, and then uh, in the regiment from there. And tell us about that because oftentimes, you know, SAS, and I've, I've had the great privilege of, I haven't trained with SAS, but I have trained with Navy SEALs, Ukrainian Special Forces. But, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're looking at a, a Navy SEAL or, you know, yeah. a British SAS or Australian SAS, there's oftentimes a lot of mystery surrounding you know not so much the selection process but the people you know oftentimes in photos their faces are blacked out yeah 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 um but there's a real um i could, i guess you could say um high degree of and we talk about writer passions but initiation that's required to be accepted into sas i know with um with the Navy SEALs, I'm a lot more familiar with their process. You know, they, they have their BUDS training, which is, you know, culminated with Hell Week. Hell Week. And then, you know, if you manage to get through that, then you, then you, you know, you're, you've qualified for the SQL training. Uh, and then there's more training, you know, before you, you then you get the opportunity to put into a team. Tell us about the, the, the arduous or, 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 or the mental gymnastics that they put you through that help them identify who does have what it takes. Because this is where I find the science really interesting, you know, and you probably know this better than anybody. You know, it's more than uh, 80% of people that apply for the SEALs, they will, you know, ding themselves out. And I know the US military, and this is going back, you know, maybe a decade or more ago, they went and thought, well, hang on, we're spending all these millions, if not billions of dollars over time training you know 400 people at a time but we're only putting 80 people through surely there's a way that we can profile these people to be able to identify the characteristics so that we're training less people and graduating more and what i found really interesting is with all the psych profiles i only came down to be able to identify one component that was categorically present in all of those 20 percent, which was grit but then they had the trouble of well how do we measure that because they can't measure that you know, in a psychometric profile. So I'd love to know, you know, how, you know, the, 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 the SAS essentially qualified you uh, and, you know, what that was like when you're observing other people. Because I'm going to assume the failure rate for the SAS is going to be similar. Is it similar to the... Yeah, it is. And, and there's variations on themes around the world in terms of selection processes, um, but often they're, they're looking at the same principles. I mean, to, to answer that question, I... I do actually want to talk about, you mentioned the word initiation and sort of rite of passage. Yes. I think that's a really important component of this. So over and above the, the sort of mechanics of how people are selected and what we're looking for, which I'll talk to in a second, it is actually a very um, crucial step in terms of becoming a member of this social group. Yeah. Um, and we- Very exclusive like, social group. Yeah. And- I think there's some really interesting aspects of that that, you know, I think if you look at things like social identity theory where they mm. talk about in groups and um, we've seen over history when they get ex exclusionary rather than exclusive, you know, and they start really negatively comparing with other groups that can get can breed a toxicity. But I think there is we, we tend to talk about things like rites of passage and initiation in a very pejorative sense these days yeah. because we think of you know, frat 
house hazing and and these sorts of juvenile versions of it. But I think there is something very important about having a common hardship that bonds a group together, a common sort of standard and understanding amongst people, particularly in uh, occupations like special operations. And so there is a really uh, an emblematic, a symbolic um, importance to the, the selection course. And of course, all of the courses end with some kind of artefact. You know, the Navy SEALs get their tridents. We get a, a Sandy Beret at the end of all of it, which again, talks about that that sort of social group and the, the membership of that that particular you know, um, group of people. Yeah, that identification. But look, to, to answer your, your question, it, I, I, it's really interesting you saying that everyone has been chasing that holy grail. You know, we're burning all these people out. We're injuring a lot of people. You know, can we shortcut this by looking at either psych or physical characteristics that will predict um, success? And, and no one's been able to find it because it does vary so differently. There are so many different types of people that get through this course that it is hard to, to sort of neck them down and profile. It's interesting you say grit was the the one correlate um, in our sort of experience, the the only sort of psychological um, uh, correlate, and it, it wasn't even a, a strong correlation, but the strongest of them was with locus of control. And so- What was it? This is locus of control. Oh, I like so that. The ability to um, uh, to feel that you're you, you've got a say in your destiny, uh, someone with a high internal locus of control, and this comes out in our resilience research as well. Yeah, wow. uh, feels like they can they can change the way things. They're not uh, a victim. They're not completely at the whim of, of fate or mercy. So um, people are judged as to have either an internal or an external locus of control, gotcha. and none of this is binary. But yep. yep. And so, you know, we look at the work from Carol Dweck, and you're probably familiar with yep. her work growth mindset. around growth mindset versus fixed mindset. And the fixed mindset, you know, is typically characterized by someone who doesn't believe they have the capacity to solve problems. Yep. And when they're given a problem, you look at their brain on an fMRI, you know, it's pretty much dead. When you look at someone who's got the growth mindset, who's been given a, the same problem under an fMRI, their brain is lit up, you know, making numerous connections trying yep. to solve that problem because there's a fundamental belief that they they can. So when you say locus control, are we are we really talking about a growth mindset here, someone who feels like they have the power to change things? Yes, I think there's a massive overlap. And, and we actually talk about that in the book. The, yep. That understanding of Dweck's work um, was pretty profound for me, actually. Um, I, me too. You know, jumping forward, but, you know, I, I think I did have a fixed mindset, particularly around status, you know, what people would think of me if I failed. Yeah, if, right. I, if I'm honest, that was a, a bit of a factor for me. And so that concept of, of having a growth mindset, seeing failure as an opportunity to learn, seeing, you know, obstacles as challenges, not threats. Definitely someone with a high internal locus of control is more predisposed to having that kind of mindset. And I mean, you mentioned grit and, and um, Angela Duckworth's work there. All of these things I think are overlapping Venn diagrams. You know, yes. we're seeing a lot of that grit as a subset of the personality trait of conscientiousness. You know, that kind of perseverance that is buttressed by a, a perspective that you you can control your destiny, you can change things. And all of this, I think, you know, when you're looking at this concept of resilience, it's the it's the antithesis of victimhood. You know, you can, mm. and we love the Stoics, um, Marcus Aurelius advises us to get active in your own rescue all of this contributes to your feeling that you can get active in your own rescue and with the the things like the grit the growth mindset 
that you have the determination, the passion and perseverance to actually see that through. So when we talk, because we've, we've, I think we've described locus of control and we've got a pretty good understanding of the importance of, of what a, a growth mindset is and how that applies to this area. But I think sometimes people go, well, resilience, what is it? Grit, what is it? How do you define those terms? Yeah, that, it was a massive question for us. And, and really, that was the, the question that, that started our, our journey, which ultimately led to this book. The, the catalyst for us was seeing um, some of our friends go through experiences, uh, particularly deployed, you know, traumatic experiences in Afghanistan and have these markedly different responses. And on paper, we looked like the same human being. You know, we we're all physically fit. We clearly had some level of mental robustness uh, because we'd got through these selection courses and this training and that sort of stuff. We'd all experienced the same traumas and yet the reaction was different. And so this for us was a big mm. thing. You know, it must be more than just the physical fitness and the mental toughness. What were these other components? And so that set us on our journey and, and particularly my brother Dan's experiences. He, he had a couple of bad tours and, and had some post-traumatic stress experiences after that. And so that got us on this journey to really understand what resilience was. And our model, the Resilience Shield, describes it being multifactorial, made up of a whole bunch of different things, dynamic. It needs to ebb and flow with your life and it needs to change depending on circumstance and even the individual. And importantly, it's modifiable. You can get better at resilience. And so the, the six components that we call the layers of the resilience shield are innate. There is a nature-nurture, genetics, epigenetics thing to it. Yeah. Um, mind, which is massive, and this encompasses all of those things that give you that positive, um, you know, what, what William Ernest Henley calls an unconquerable soul. So things like grit mindset, things like the sort of stoic perspectives that we, we're very attracted to. But also the mind layer includes our ability to flush the nonsense out. So practices like meditation, like mindfulness, like gratitude, these kind of things help us get rid of the distracting thoughts, which again, sort of really support that that positive mindset. And just on that, you know, because yeah. I think there'll be a couple of listeners going, so hang on a second, are you telling me that you train SAS, do SAS get trained to be mindful and meditate? We we didn't, and I wish we had, and I mm. think we're getting the units getting better at it. And Kuhn, this is an awesome point because I came late to, to mindfulness and meditation, and I came very cynically to mindfulness and meditation. Even now, a part of me, when I hear that word, before I catch myself, I think yeah. of you know mung beans, orange flowing robes, and incense candles, and it's it's anathema to that kind of martial warrior context that that um, I, I was in. But I, I think this is a PR campaign, not a fundamental problem with the, the product. Yeah. Um, mindfulness, meditation, any of these focus-type practices are just like going to the gym for your brain. Mm. And the research, that the, the entry for me was seeing some of the research about neuroplasticity yeah. and the positive things that mindfulness training can do to your brain, in particular things like uh, laminating the pathways between your prefrontal cortex, your thinking brain, and your amygdala, which is your primal responsive brain. Essentially, what this is telling us is that mindfulness practice can, like I said, it's a gym training for your brain, but it allows us to put our thinking brain in the driver's seat for our stress response um, or, or more in the driver's seat over our stress response, which to me is epic. Like that is 
an incredible thing that we can be doing through this kind of training. So number two is the mind. What's number three? Number three is the body. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm sort of jumping ahead. None of these are independent layers. Obviously, there is a, an interwoven aspect to them. Yep. But we're talking sleep, diet, and exercise here. Yep. Um, interestingly, that is a no-brainer. Everyone knows that those things are going to impact on your resilience and, and promote it. And yet, when we start getting stressed, what are the first three things that go? Sleep, diet, and exercise. And so, you know, recognising the importance of those. And, and some of the nuance to that sleep is really interesting. Our research shows that that is MVP, most valuable player for the, the body layer um, by a long shot. And some of the things that we do to compromise our sleep, things like blue light, things like um, uh, off caffeine at the wrong time, certainly things like alcohol before sleep, um, can really have an impact on on how that's helping us in a restorative sense. It's interesting. Um, I don't know if you've read Stephen Kotler's latest book, um, The Art of Impossible. You have? I haven't. No, oh, no. I'm familiar with Plucking with Fire. Yeah. Yeah, you, you'll absolutely love it. But it's interesting. He talks about the six or the seven layers of grit. But one of the layers of grit that he talks about, which is one of the most important layers of grit, is he calls it the grit to recover. And he, he characterized it beautifully because I think, you know, this is a problem that not just I think military have, but I think this is everyday people, but especially high performers, entrepreneurs, executives, is we sometimes feel guilty when we take time off. You know, sometimes oh, I could meditate for 20 minutes or I could, you know, I could or I could, you know, write this brief. Yeah. Uh, well, this needs to be done. It's on a deadline. I'll just focus on that. Have you started to identify that there's a real discipline, there's a real grit, there's a real resilience that's actually required in order to be able to um, support the body and support the mind in order to prevent burnout, but also optimize performance? Yes, there really is. And the, the paradox, I think, is that once you start becoming aware of that and you find that 10, 20 minutes to meditate and you find that little space to, to do the exercise, Anecdotally, and, and certainly talking with a lot of people who've found this, that it actually builds more time into your day. You know, you find that you can become more focused. Um, we talk a lot about uh, the overlap between the focus of things like mindfulness practices and meditation, and then being able to switch on to a job and actually, you know, neck it down without constant distraction and constant chattering mind, which actually builds more time into your day. But your point's a really good one, Kern. This doesn't just happen. And the idea that, I'll just find that 20 minutes somewhere in my day to, to do these things. Um, a, it makes them discretionary and so they get dropped off. And B, it kind of never happens. We've run out of time. So it does require, I like that idea of grit for recovery, that we need to be disciplined in, in building what we talk about habits, you know, just bolt these little habits together and, and it becomes a routine. Where I really learned about this, I spent um, about almost three weeks in Ukraine. Uh, I had the great privilege of training with some of their special forces over there. And um, we were training in this incredible facility. It was probably one of the top private military facilities in, um, in Europe. But we were, what, I was, what I observed straight away is we, they said, okay, we're only going to be training for about you know, an hour and a half to two hours for the first few days. And then that's it. And I was like, what? I want to be training for like six or seven hours. And But then what I noticed, you'd train. And again, you know, the first three days, it was all dry. It was all dry fire weapons drilling, you know, small arms and the AR. And um, what I noticed after about an hour and a half, two hours, you're literally mentally exhausted mm. to the point where you know, they said, okay, so you've now reached the point of saturation or satiation and you've now reached the point of diminishing returns. And if you keep going now, all you're going to be doing is practicing mistakes, practicing yeah. bad habits. 
And by about the seventh day, we were, you know, into the live fire drills then, you know, we were, you know, doing dry fire drills as well for two hours and another two hours of live fire drills. And what I noticed was the level of fatigue that was coming on. Yes, I was able to progress further and further and further. But what became really interesting is if, as soon as I started meditating in the breaks, my capacity to be able to keep going without losing performance was increased dramatically to the point where I actually had the instructors coming over and going, what's going on? Like, why are you able to? It was really interesting. And I was like, fucking awesome. sure these guys must be onto this. But yeah. it's the same in everyday life, right? We get to the point where we become satiated with stress, satiated with emotions, you know, and we start making mistakes, but we don't take a break. We keep going. And oftentimes all we're doing is practicing making mistakes in the everyday work that we do. So how do we, if you're telling me, you know, someone's listening going, fuck, you know, I'm really shit at taking care of myself. Well, how do I take care? What, what's one thing I can do to, to, to develop a level of grit or discipline around taking care of myself? Like, what would you say to someone in that situation? I reckon for me, the biggest thing um, is get it out of your head. Make it so it's not just your mind that's the only thing that's keeping you accountable for it. And that can even be as simple as making a commitment on a piece of paper. We love journaling. I think that's a a really cool um, thing to do for a whole bunch of reasons. But if you can commit to it externally, that's the first uh, step that that can actually make this thing real and not something that's just in your head and you can you can throw out. Better yet, still, if you can enrol someone into the practice, and if we get these beautiful overlaps between, um, you know, things like exercise and and social, spending time with loved ones or friends, you know, that gives you that external accountability as well. But even you know, if you don't have the luxury of that, or if we're in lockdown or whatever, um, even just that externalizing it by writing it down. Um, that that can make it real. And then remove the barriers. You know, things like laying out your exercise gear in the morning so that you don't have to go through that executive function of working out what to wear and that's that can act as a barrier. Things like, you know, setting the alarm and actually having the, the meditation area set up if that's what you want to do as the, the first part of your day. Things like using guided meditation apps. These are awesome tools that can just remove those little barriers to entry, those little things that may become the sticking points when you're actually going to do it, the easier you can make it on yourself, the the more chance it's got of being sticky. One of the things that I've observed that affects people's performance is fatigue, Um, Mm. but specifically decision fatigue. Mm. Um, So I'm going to assume, you know, with the work that you've done, especially in the high risk, not just in military, but also in in the, the civilian space, that you guys have worked out ways that you can manage fatigue, body fatigue, mental fatigue, you know, and decision fatigue is a real fatigue. So how do you support people to prevent them from having to make too many decisions that can prevent them from operating and performing at a high level? One of the, the for me personally, and what we teach a lot through our leadership and resilience practices is a bit of an understanding about this idea of complexity. So um, there's a whole amazing school of uh, academic research into complex adaptive systems theory. But in a nutshell, what it's telling us is we can't predict the future. And I think so much of what we do and so much of the pressure we put on ourselves and so much of the expectation that organisations put on leaders is this idea that you're supposed to come up with a plan that can predict the future. And this causes a lot of that issue with with decisions. If we're able to reframe it with an understanding that we cannot predict, and indeed, as soon as we interact with the system, we're going to change that future anyway, Mm. 
it shifts our focus from having to come up with um, what a guy called Dave Snowden talks about, shifting from a fail-safe plan to a safe-fail experiment. You know, we shift out. Yeah, I think it's really powerful that that our, our decisions are not final. They're not the set in stone thing. They are a, a sort of decision based on what we know at this stage. But ha- having that kind of mental model, A, means that we're, we're not sort of setting this far and forget sort of path. And B, it leaves us open to what the environment's actually feeding back to us. Mm. So it fights things like confirmation bias and groupthink. It keeps us more open to what's actually happening and allows us to to adapt and go through, which I, I think really can help with that decision fatigue. I, I couldn't agree more. And that's actually a really uh, sophisticated perspective around this concept. Some of the low-hanging fruit that I've heard to people talk about around decision fatigue is just kind of looking at the t- decisions that you have to make every day on a regular basis and just removing the either the requirement for a decision or the requirement for a comparison to be made for a decision to be made. And oftentimes we we talk about people wearing the same thing every day, yeah, or yeah. you know, using like routines. And Obama and, yeah. yeah, like I'm 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 pretty much the same. Like I've got twenty of the same T-shirt, you know, five of the same pair of jeans, thirty of the same pair of underwear, thirty of the same pair of socks, and every day I, I don't have to think. I just pull something off the shelf. But is that actually effective? Does that actually support when it comes to you know the decisions that I'm making, you know, at eight thirty in the morning versus the decisions that I now have to make at five thirty in the afternoon after a big day? The, the research seems to, to suggest that it does, that the more we can remove that executive function from decisions that don't really matter. So, you know, even things like um, meal planning can be a real mm. burden for, for a lot of people. If we're able to get that, and, and some of those uh, meal delivery systems are Bloody pretty cool for that, yeah. you know, in terms of making sure your, your diet's good as well as taking out the that decision. But, yeah, any... We do use executive function if we're if we're making those sort of decisions, and um, if we're able to remove that from the those sort of quotidian decisions that yeah. don't really matter, then it does free up some of that bandwidth to to focus on the things that do. I'd love to get back to the resilience shield. We've talked about number one is innate, and, yes. and it's an internal. We're talking about number two, mind, and all the layers around the psychology. We talk about number three, the body. Uh, yep. And you touched on three important points, you know, diet, exercise, it wasn't hydration sleep. and sleep, you know, the yeah. MVP. What are yeah. the other three? The other three are social, professional and adaptation. So the, the social layer is massive. And this, if I'm honest with you, Koo, and this is my area of weakness, um, it, it opens some really interesting co- questions about connection, connectivity, um, I think there's a fantastic and really interesting ongoing dialogue about social media as, a, as an element of this. Where does it fit in? But it is talking about those um, enduring networks. And we really distinguish between uh, the, the social connections we have within work and the social connections we have out of work. A lot of people, particularly high-performing people, who are very dedicated to what they're doing in their job. They tend to not have too many mates, uh, you know, networks outside of, outside of work and the, the litmus test we ask is that you know if you or they were sacked tomorrow would you would you have that ongoing relationship and if the answer is uh, no then then that's a, a professional friend that's not contributing to what we call the social layer and so what we're talking about here is is having the ability um, to, to have meaningful relationships and get that kind of support from friends and family interestingly our research distinguishes and I didn't 
I wasn't attuned to this until we started uh, really getting into the interrogation of, of the data from our resilience survey. But there is a distinction between building resilience and reducing vulnerability. I think I'd always thought they just uh, operated so inversely true. proportional. Yeah. But you can actually be relatively high in resilience, but still relatively vulnerable. And this is where the social layer really comes into it. Wow. If we have that human connection, then we're actually reducing the vulnerability, which is feelings of things like alienation and powerlessness and rigidity. Um, social con connectivity helps to reduce that more than, than any other aspect of the resilient shield. You know, it's interesting, and I don't mean to cut you off, but no. you know, in... Um Stephen Kotler's work, he talked about the, you know, this, I think it was the six or the seven layers, Paul put that up again, of grit. And then I, um, and I was inspired by that and I came up with what I, I wrote, I created a presentation called the, the 14 Elements of Grit. And although Stephen didn't talk about this, it's one that I've, you've just nailed right on the head, which is what I refer to as social grit. Because we, we are so aware of how we're becoming increasingly more aware through the research of how important social connections are. Yeah. But for some of us, and I'm going to assume you for maybe fall in that category, I'm an introvert. Like I'm, a, I'm an ambivert, so I can stand on stage and talk to 12,000 people. But if you put me in a room to speak to four people, I will be more nervous talking to four people that I don't know than you know, 12,000 people that I don't. And I've discovered that although my desire is to move away from social connection it actually was hindering me it was it was affecting my psych, it was affecting my, my my psychological capacity it was affecting my emotional capacity and then i started to go well but i don't want to socialize and i was like well you have to mate okay and i know it's going to be hard but we're going to have to do this because this is going to increase your performance as a parent it's going to increase your performance as an entrepreneur and so do you think for some of us, there is a level of grit that is required in order to be able to push ourselves out of our comfort zone to be able to create those social connections so that we can get that meaningful benefit? Yes, I very much do. And I think the first thing I think is this is so individual. And, and mm. the really big important thing about um, where we wanted to go with our model is there's no one size fits all for any of this, you know, and this is why we have a resilience survey, which helps benchmark your individual resilience profile and gives you an idea where you might want to focus your efforts. And the second thing is, it's not a competition. You know, you don't need to say, oh, this person's got more stress than me, or I've got more resilience. Yeah. It's not about that. It's about, about yourself. So to answer your question, I think the first thing is understanding where we currently are. And you mentioned introversion, extroversion, you know, this is part of the big five personality characteristics. Having an understanding of that, I think is really important because it helps you understand how you're going to impact in these situations. Introverted people tend to need to recharge after social interaction. Mm. This doesn't mean they can't do it. It doesn't mean they can't go on stage. It doesn't mean they can't have meaningful relationships, but they recognize that potentially that's more draining than it might be for an extrovert who may draw energy out of those kind of things. So that understanding is really important. The second thing, and this is a really important distinction, is there's a difference between loneliness and solitude. I think solitude is a wonderful thing, I and I'm naturally that. drawn to that. Me too. Um, that doesn't mean I'm lonely. But to your point about social grit, I've got to watch that I don't end up lonely. Yeah. That I, I don't because I'm naturally I like the solitude. Yeah. But I still recognise it's really important to have those human mm. contact, the human relationship, and so for me, there's some wonderful. Um, there's a lady called Tara Moore who. Uh, relays a, a conversation she had with a, a rabbi talking about this concept of fear 
And the, the rabbi says that, that English is a, is a clumsy language. It only has one word for fear. Whereas in Hebrew, there's two words. There's pahad, which is this reptilian, saber-toothed tiger leaping, leaping at you, no shit, fight or flight fear. You want to listen to that. But our body interprets the second type of fear exactly the same way. And this type of fear, yira, is what uh, the rabbi referred to as the fear you get when you're in a space that's bigger than you're used to inhabiting, when you're on the ah. precipice of doing something new. Ooh, and I this like to me, this. I love this oh, because amazing. this... This is a heuristic that you're in that growth mindset yeah, space. Yeah. You're doing a stretch goal. And it's creating a positive frame around fear. Exactly. Yeah. And so this is the fear you want to lean into. You yes. want to harness that era. You don't want to run fear. away for it. And so on that social thing, you know, I, I sometimes do find that uh, gee, I prefer not to do this. or, or But I recognize that that apprehension is, is out of you know, the, the wrong kind of fear. And I should be leaning into that because of all the positive benefits you can go from it. I love that. I really love, I, I really, yeah, I can relate to that a lot. And I think that, as you said, there's a difference between loneliness and solitude. And it was yeah. interesting because I had a, I was at lunch a few months ago before the lockdown and um, someone was asking me about meditation. And I was explaining how, and you're, you've obviously done meditation and you're probably familiar with Vipassana, um, the meditation where you go away for 10 days. And I explained that I'd done it like, you know, six and a half times. And she goes, so you've spent like 60, almost 70 days by yourself, you know, in quiet meditation. And I was like, yeah, she goes, that must've been really lonely. And I was like, wow. I said, actually, no, it's not. I said, well, I guess it could have been if you don't know yourself very well. Mm. And I think, you know, because I, I think there would be some people going, well, what's the difference between loneliness and solitude? And I'd love to, me, to hear your perspective on that. Yeah, to me, it's about the choice. Um, yeah. I think loneliness is when you, you cannot find yeah. um, uh, that connection. kind of meaningful human human connection. And solitude's more when you you choose to to deliberately remove yourself for it for for positive benefits. There's there's an awesome book you've, you've probably come across it, Tribe by Sebastian Junger. Oh, I have. I haven't read it though, but I've yeah. got it on my on my. It's on my bookshelf at home, and I've had that many wrecks on it. I should read it. Yeah, mate. It'll take you two hours to read, and I mean, it's it's through a military lens. He obviously spent a lot of time embedded with the U.S. military, the whole Restrepo experience that he had. But I think he really nails this idea of of kind of loneliness, even though we've got a million Facebook friends, we've got a bunch of connections on mm. Instagram, we're, we're living in an apartment building with 200 other people, you know, within 50 metres of us, and yet, you know, we can still feel lonely as a result. He, he really portrays that idea of belonging. And again, it comes back to that discussion we had about feeling part of something and kind of the initiation and the shared experience, shared hardship thing from a military context. And that's an important part of performance, you know, and if you look at, you know, any research, you know, Dan Pink, you know, has put some great yeah. research together, especially around um, motivation and drive. And, you know, he's got the great book, Drive the Surprising Truth about what really motivates us. And he's looking at Chick Me Sent Me High's work and Carol Dweck's mm. work. Um, but one of the things that he identified was purpose, the importance yeah. of... Yeah. You know, he identified the three, you know, the three most important things, which was, you know, autonomy, uh, mastery and purpose, but purpose yep. being a part of something, being a part of a yep. cause, being a part of a movement, something bigger than self. Yep. And again, that's what, you know, when you look at SAS or SEALs, that's a big part of the initiation is to become mm. a part of something, a cause or a movement. Yep. So yep. how do we, you know, as entrepreneurs, as parents, uh, as athletes, how do we use that as a way to enroll others in the in in what it is that we're trying to do, and what are some of the best ways that you've seen people enroll others into a cause or a purpose that 
ultimately will induce a higher level of performance. This segues perfectly into the the next layer, the professional layer, because this this is a big part of what we're talking about in terms of professional resilience. Um, Very much echoing uh, Pink's sort of thoughts, we talk about these ideas of virtuosity, so mastery, but also purpose, having some sort of meaning. And there's a couple of different aspects here. One, I mean, ultimately, we would all love to find that job with meaning. And I use the, the throwaway line, you know, with moved to the North Shore of Bali and start a surf school using recycled plastic surfboards and employing orphans, whatever it might be. Yeah. That, that's fantastic. But it's not necessarily 100% feasible for, for all of us. And so we focus a lot on finding purpose in your job. So rather than finding that job with purpose, oh, finding purpose that. in your job. And I think as a leader, it's really important to be able to bring that out. We talk about there needing to be a golden thread of logic between the ultimate organisational purpose, what we're saying on the the front door of our our company. But that needs to translate down into what people are doing day to day. They need to see that connection. And so the best companies, the best organisations that we've worked with, the purpose or the values or the ethos or the uh, vision, whatever you want to call that that sort of list of platitudes that that we often find in corporate things, In the best companies, best organisations, these actually mean something. The leaders within that organisation bring them to life. They seek every opportunity to demonstrate what does integrity mean within this context? What does compassion mean? What does excellence mean? What does respect mean? All of these platitudinal words, if we're able to bring them to life and link them to what we're all about in the company, Mm. that can be a really powerful way of creating that purpose. And sometimes you have to look for it. Yep. But it's it's definitely worthwhile. I mean, this is where we transcend that kind of transactional relationship where we're just clocking in and getting our paycheck towards inspiring people to to believe that what we're doing does have meaning, does have purpose. But you're also talking about the autonomous motivation that's that the programming that's required in many respects at a psychological level to provoke autonomous motivation, you know, because a lot of people are saying, Oh, I I just can't feel motivated. I need to read a book. I need to go to a seminar. And they say, well, how do you motivate yourself? And I say, well, if I can wake up and I wake up that way, but that doesn't help someone, you know? And one of the things that I do, and it's a very, I guess you could say, um, gross example of what you were just referring to is if I've got someone that wants to do something and oftentimes what I find is, you know, money is very rarely in people's top 10 values. They think it is, but it's not. All you've got to do is yeah. look at their behaviors and their acquisition yeah. and their, their care towards it. In most cases, it's not. But oftentimes people want more money. But when it's not a value, how do you find, how do you initiate a motivation to get and to have and to hold something that isn't a genuine value to you? You know, and I, and this is my experience in business because oftentimes I'm working with people in business and then trying to grow a business and they're struggling to work out why they can't make more money, but they don't realize there's no value for money. Yeah. And yeah. so one of the, the things in, um, that I've worked with with people is creating these neuron, the, these linkages in the neurons, these neurological connections that when they are laminated over time, provoke and trigger an automated response, which is a behavior that we're looking for. And I call it the Fortune yeah. 500 list. And I look at, okay, let's say your number one value is, uh, is family and it's demonstrated through your behaviors, it's through your activities, your discussions, and you know, it's, it's categoric, it's not social. But you want to have more money. So I get them to answer, answer these questions. Okay, give me the 500 benefits to your family that making more money will give your family. 
Now, most people will normally tap out at 40 and then they'll push themselves to 60. And, you know, it's rare that I get someone to 500. In most cases, I can get someone about 120, 200 before something in their head just clicks. And all of a sudden, they find themselves wanting to do things that they've never done before that as a natural consequence, produce more leads or as a natural consequence, produce more sales or as a natural consequence, produce more productivity, which ultimately produces more revenue. Do you have any little hacks like that that you use in order to, because it's one one thing to hype someone up to get them motivated, but yep. it's another thing to give someone the gift of self-knowledge so that they can motivate themselves. How do you cross that barrier? How do you give people that? One of the big ones that I think is really important is let, let's leverage off some of these natural mental heuristics that your brain wants to do. And a massive one is confirmation bias. Mm, so confirmation so bias is when you start becoming aware of something, um, all of a sudden your brain's attuned to it and you start seeing it more. So, you know, if you've just bought a, a Kia car or something, all of a sudden you, you're seeing Kias everywhere. And confirmation bias can be dangerous in decision-making. Um, if you've come up with this fail-safe plan, this watertight concept, all you're going to be open to is information that, that confirms how smart you are and how, how your plan's on track. Um, so it can be a negative thing, and we want to keep our minds open in that sense. But if we are aware of the kind of things that you're, you're talking about, Kern, if we educate ourselves and refresh ourselves on the discussions about, well, what, what actually is important and even for me, a really big one is this idea of being present in social interactions. Yeah, um, so true. Because I'm, I'm increasingly aware of the importance of that, I'm now attuned to the opportunities that that, that presents. So if I'm having that five-minute conversation with a co-worker or that little bit of time with my kids before, you know, split between school and football practice and whatever, um I'm, I'm more aware that this is, this is a moment, this is an opportunity to do that thing I've been thinking or reading or, or talking about. Um, so I think immersing yourself in these kind of things, reminding yourself of these things, and I love your idea of actually codifying what's important. And this is where journaling, I think, is, yeah, is such a so really true. fantastic thing. You can reflect on um, you know, what, what is important, what you want to hit the next day, and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, you know, I've, I've, as a trite little example, there's a, a movement called Look Up, which I think is fantastic. It's about mindfulness and, and you know, literally elevating your gaze from your, your screen and that. And I've, I've been writing that down as a goal for each day. And, you know, as I walk to work um, from the train station, I'm seeing incredible things in the architecture in the city. I'm getting eye contact and smiling at people randomly. These kind of things come about because I primed myself to look for the opportunities so I'd leverage that confirmation bias that all of a sudden, hey, here's a chance to do that thing, uh, to, in that case, look up or to be present or to get eye contact or whatever it is. Mm. And last but not least, number six, adaptation. Adaptation is pretty cool. We call that the, the bonus layer. Um, essentially, you can get better, you can develop your resilience in a lot of domain-specific areas. And so... The, the, the modifiable layers, we, we consider the mind, body, social, professional, these are ones you can actively work on um, and you will improve them uh, within yourself. And our thesis is that if you get um, a, a sort of well-rounded resilience shield in these levels, then essentially you're ready for the zombie apocalypse. You can leverage off that known and knowable uh, stuff that you've done in the resilience space to, to meet any sort of novel challenge that you have this 
a, essentially a resilient shield that can deflect um, pretty much anything that life throws at you. So it is about using those skills that you've developed and transferring them into that novel environment. And it's such a critical one, especially during the times we're going through right now. You know, there's a lot of yeah. world firsts, a lot of new worlds, a lot of old worlds that are colliding. Um, you know, and there are a lot of businesses, and we we discovered this in our in our uh, high end clients. You know, we um, when when Corona hit, we were working with about 380 clients, and of those 380 clients, you know, I think we only had two that shut down. But we had clients in industries that were being wiped out that were adapting and pivoting. And now having, you know, record months, record quarters, record years to date in industries that were being completely wiped out. And I, and that's why I just can't overemphasize the importance of that last one, which is that ability to be adaptable. Because when you are adaptable, there is no failure. There's just another decision that needs to be made. There's just another, you know, there's more imagination that's required. We, we had the, the most tangible, um, you know, I talk, I talk a big game about the body layer. I, I, do enjoy my coffee and, and I go. I find it hard to go without. But the most tangible example in the early days of the lockdown were, were the two cafes that are closest to our house and very different responses to, to things being shut yeah, down. Right. One of them basically just boarded up shops and, and essentially it was like a victimhood thing, like, woe is me, don't know what's going to happen, curl into the fetal position. The other one just fought. They did things like, you know, doorfront delivery. They did things like, um, you know, sort of remodeling and, and getting food in and you could get your, your sort of um, staples from there in a touchless environment. They just fought and fought and fought with different Such models, different example. ideas, different concepts. And they were adapting what they had, you know, uh, uh, recognising that it was a coffee shop but an important part of people's daily routine and leveraging off um, the ability to provide other important parts of the daily routine and they just never gave up. It was awesome. And, and they're going gangbusters now. The I other love ones. That. I love bolded. that. I love yeah. that. You know, and another great example, I don't know if you've heard of um, Sticky, the lolly shop in the rocks. Um, did you hear about these guys? They went. No, from, I haven't. I know oh, the shop. That... They, they went from, uh, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars in revenue and then everything shut down. And then they would, they thought they were toast. And then the, the guy's daughter's like, well, let's just start doing TikTok videos of you making candy. And so anyway, it got picked up by Snoop Dogg. Snoop Dogg shared it. And they've now just turned over a million bucks, which they've never even come close to. It's like four or five times their, their, their peak revenue um, yep. without a single walking pass, without any walk, walk traffic whatsoever. And their distribution model is now TikTok, Instagram, and Facebook. And this was an organization that you know was literally completely governed by walk, walk by traffic. Yeah. And what I find so inspirational about the, I mean, we see that and we think, oh, well, yeah, switch to socials or whatever. That's not the point. The point is do something. Do something. You exactly. Know, don't, don't just roll sit there. over. Yeah. There's a, a Finnish concept called Sisu, S I S U, which is, there's no direct equivalent word, but it's like grit. It's like never give up itness. And there was a, a Finnish guy who won the CrossFit Games in 2010, a bloke called Mikko Salo. And at the end of the, the last event was just this brutal sort of series of, of physical tests. And, and he finished and um, stayed on his feet. Everyone else is in bits. They're dry reaching. They're on their back gasping for air. And the, the guy interviewing him said, you know, how come you're not on the ground? And he said, um, I, I once read that when an animal gives up, it, it lies on its back. And he said, I vowed never to do that. <laughs> this kind of idea, you know, that no matter what, 
you know, wow. they've shut my coffee shop. They, you know, I'm getting no foot traffic in my lolly shop. Oh, but that. I'm going to try something. I'm going to see if it works. And if it doesn't, I'll try something else and I'll, I'll oh. learn and I'll progress and I'll adapt. Fucking love that. Ben Pronk, this has been an absolute treat for me. Um, our values are shared and aligned in so many different ways. You've just written the book, The Resilient Shield. Is that right? Has it just come out? Or has yeah, it, been out? it yep. came out, no, 1st of August. So 1st so, of August. Yeah, Congratulations, recent. mate. Thank you. I've been threatening to write a book for uh, about 15 years now, so I know it takes a lot of work to actually <laughs> get it done. Um, has, it, has it been a few years in the making? Yeah, it has. It's it's really a codification of about fifteen years worth of reflection, yeah, wow. and then more more recently the the work we've been doing with corporate clients. Um, but mate, it, it's a it, it has been a fantastic process. Um, never go into business or write a book with your best mate and your brother, but <laughs> notwithstanding that, <laughs> uh, notwithstanding that, it's been bloody brilliant, mate. I'll I'll have to get myself a copy. If people would like to um, get themselves a copy of the book or find out more about you, where can they go? Yeah, and we'll put all these links in the footnotes. Awesome. Um, resilientshield.com is, is kind of ground zero for, uh, we post a lot of our reflections through blogs there. There's links to, to being able to buy signed copies of the book um, and a little bit more about the model there. Um, and then we're on um, predominantly Instagram. I think we do have a TikTok account, but we, we don't. And you, um, have, you a- have a podcast as well. Yeah, so Tim uh, Curtis, the co-author and my business partner, um, and I have been doing the Unforgiving Sixty for for a number of years, which has has been really awesome. With like your show, you know, it's such a privilege to speak to to all, a wide variety of people doing really interesting things. Fantastic, Ben. Uh, it's an honor and a pleasure. And if it's okay by you, this won't be our last conversation. I'd love to pick up this conversation at some point in the future. Mate, I, I, I'm with you. I've really enjoyed the chat and I think there's a bunch of areas we could, we could chat There's a lot. About. There's a lot. We could talk for hours. Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to Unstoppable and this has been Ben Pronk. This episode is brought to you by Nail It and Scale It, the world's leading fast growth program for businesses. If you have ever wanted to grow your business faster than what you can right now, if you need to make more revenue, if you need more leads, if you need more clients, if you need to know how to plan your business in a strategic way in order to hit big goals, if you need to learn how to scale your business and grow your team and your business so that you have more freedom, then this program is for you. Imagine three days immersed with me where we cover all aspects of business, but we do it from an immersive, but also an execution standpoint. We execute every step of the way and we're looking at five key areas we're looking at your psychology we're looking at your marketing your sales your leadership and we're looking at your planning and how we integrate these five key areas to grow your business and your brand quickly so if you'd like to find out more information kerwinray.com